You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. God, amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Austin. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. It is such a privilege and a joy to gather with you at this church to sing God's praises. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer have the privilege of leading us in preaching and vision. And we are in a sermon series working through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth through 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you just to get it out, to open it up, turn it on. If it's on your phone, get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have um, a pen, a notepad, a worship guide, get that out as well. Take notes. Let's be a learner today. As we've been working through 1 Corinthians, we have made our way to chapter 7. And in Chapter 6 and into chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has been addressing some really important, relevant questions, issues. He's been talking about sexuality. He's been addressing the Christian sexual ethic. How How do we live as men and women, single men and women, married men and women, He's addressing these, que- these questions of sexuality and marriage and singleness, even getting into the topic of divorce. And ultimately what Paul is doing is he's teaching God's design for us as men and women. He's teaching God's design for us and our sexuality. He's been pointing to the high and holy view of marriage that the Bible teaches between a man and a woman. He's going to go on and talk about the empowering Christian view of singleness. And we'll talk about that next week. And it's really a beautiful section of scripture. It's, there's a lot to it. If you've been with us, we've been kind of wading through these issues. But it's beautiful and it's quite countercultural, this Christian view of men and women, of singleness and marriage, of sexuality, of God's design for us. It was quite countercultural in ancient Corinth, and it is quite countercultural today in our post-Christian, post-modern world. And ultimately, what Paul is doing is he's pointing to the good news of Jesus for relationally broken people, for sexually scarred people. He's saying, look at Jesus, how through Jesus we can be remade into the flourishing design of our creator. Yet right in the middle of all of this, we get verses 17 through 24. We get our text today. And at first, it's It's a bit odd. It seems a bit out of place. What is Paul doing bringing circumcision and slavery into this discussion about marriage and singleness and sexuality? Well, it's not quite as out of place as it might seem at first. Here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. Paul wants to anchor this conversation about men and women, singleness and marriage, in an important Christian truth. And here it is. It's that your significance... Your identity, your joy, your significance, your identity, your joy, it does not come from anything on the horizontal plane of this life. It doesn't come from anything earthly, any earthly status or position. No, your identity, your significance, your joy comes from being called of God. I want you to hear me for a second. I know we're just getting started, but I'm preaching. I want you to hear me for a second. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter your background, no matter your wealth, no matter your marital status, no matter your occupation, if you are in Christ Jesus by grace, through faith, you are significant and secure. Amen? 
Amen. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, if you've been baptized into Christ, if you've put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is no, neither slave nor free, there is male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. It's this core principle that Paul is teaching. So let's pray and we'll get back into it. Almighty God, we thank you for the privilege to gather together as your people. And as we open your word, we simply pray, I simply pray that you would speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Whether we are here and we've been walking with Jesus for decades or days, or if you're someone's here today that doesn't know you, that has not found significance and security and identity in Christ and Christ alone, I pray that you would capture our hearts, all of us, this morning with your truth. Our prayer is simple. We say to you, Holy Father, we want you here this morning. We invite you here this morning. Speak to us as we open your word. Minister to us, Holy Spirit. Point us to the sufficiency of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Let's look at it again. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Does anybody know who Doug Collins is? I know Josh does. Josh knows Doug Collins. Anybody know? Yeah, we've got some NBA fans in here. Doug Collins was an NBA player in the 1970s. He coached in the 80s and 90s. And most recently, he's been a below-average NBA broadcaster, in my opinion. Um, But in 1986, he took the head coaching position for the Chicago Bulls. And the Chicago Bulls had a young superstar on their team who was going into his third NBA season. Maybe you've heard of him. Some of you might be hip enough to be wearing his shoes. His name is Michael Jordan. And the previous two coaches in consecutive years had been fired by the Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan was a superstar, but the team had been losing. And Doug Collins was hired to come in and to like make this work. You have Michael Jordan, make this work. And the story goes that Doug Collins gave his team a three-step path to success. And here it was. He said, embrace your role, stay in your role, and star in your role. That's good coach speech right there. Embrace your role, stay in your role, and star in your role. And this message that Collins gave to the 1986 Bulls, apparently it worked because the team turned around. They began to flourish. By his second year, they were 50 and 32. They made it to the second round of the playoffs, barely getting ousted by the bad boys Pistons. And Michael Jordan was ascending to be the best player in the league. You see, Collins found a way to help every player embrace the significance, the purpose, and the necessity of their position. Whether they were a starter, a bench player, or the eventual goat, each person was needed, and each person needed to embrace their specific assignment. And it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is trying to get a similar message across to the Corinthians. Perhaps Doug Collins was more of a theologian than he realized. Paul says in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Think about that. If you're a Christian this morning, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or to her. The word assigned in the ESV, in the original Greek, means to bestow or to deal or to distribute. Some Bible translations might use the word appoint or place. Let each person live the life that the Lord has appointed or place them. 
Paul says, this is my rule, this is my teaching in all the churches. This is a basic Christian principle, instruction for all Christians. He's saying, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free, truly free? Do you want to truly flourish in the life that you have in Christ? Well, then embrace the role, embrace the life that God has assigned for you. And I just want to ask you this morning, what is that for you right now? What is it? Is it as a married person, a single person? Kids, no kids, the beginning of your life, maybe the beginning of your marriage? Are you, are you toward the end of your life? Where are you? Where is the position and the role that God has assigned for you? He says, embrace it, star in it. This introduces us to a few biblical truths that we actually really need in the Christian life. And the first is this it's that your life is not random. Your life is not random. Your life is not the outcome of a series of random decisions and choices that you've made over the months and years and decades of your life. Your life is not random. No, Christians believe that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns over your life and your lot. That is an important Christian truth. If you're married, it's because God has willed it. If you're single, it's because God has assigned it. If you've been divorced or you are widowed, it is because God has allowed it and he has promised that he will redeem it. In fact, you can apply this principle to other facets of your life, to your work, to your children, to your physical health. Your life is not happenstance. In fact, this this invites us to embrace the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I want you to know something. You better believe that the that the persecutor of Christians who met the resurrected Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, believed in the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we start to talk about the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of God's sovereignty, I think it's important to clarify something. When, When the biblical writers write about God's sovereignty, they are not doing so from a Western, individualistic, consumer perspective that you and I live, that life is about me and my own individual fulfillment and happiness. This is not the framework that they have when they talk about the sovereignty of God. What do I mean? Well, here's what I mean. Sometimes I think that what we can do as Western Christians, when we start talking about the sovereignty of God over our lives, this truth that is meant to be comforting, we can start to go septic with sovereignty. We can start to get toxic with the sovereignty of God. What we can do is we can begin to misappropriate our hurts and our pains and our sufferings and our disappointments. We can start to misappropriate those things, those realities of living in a world of sin and death, fallen people in broken bodies, in a broken world. We can start to misappropriate all of those things upon God, our Savior and our Redeemer. We can blame God for the reality of sin and death and evil in our world. We can start to view him as no longer being good. We can say, God, how can you, a sovereign God, do this to me? Do you see how we can do this? So we can misappropriate through our Western lens evil, the sins of others against us, our own disappointments with the outworkings of our life. We can misappropriate those upon God, and it leads us to mistrust him. It leads to disillusionment. And I just want to encourage us, church family, away from this view of the sovereignty of God. See, the sovereignty of God is supposed to be a beautiful and comforting doctrine for us as sojourners in this world, as his people. 
You see, when Paul, what Paul is talking about here, when he's appealing to the sovereignty of God, is he's appealing to God as our sovereign redeemer. He says, let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called. I want you to underline that if you have a Bible open. The word called there in the Greek is the word kaleo. It's one of my favorite words, one of my favorite biblical words. And it means to, to be called forth or to be called out. See, this is what Paul is appealing to as he's, call, as he's talking about sovereignty here. He's saying, live your life in whatever situation, Christian, or whatever circumstance, brother or sister, that you are in, knowing that you are God's called out one. You're his chosen one. You are his beloved. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about this. If you're a Christian this morning, God is the sovereign Lord who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9 tells us. You are his called out one. He is the mighty savior who has looked upon you in your sinful state with unmerited mercy and he's lifted you up out of sin's grip and sin's penalty if you are in Christ Jesus. He is the omnipotent Lord who called you out of the domain of darkness and into the glorious kingdom of his beloved son. He is the omniscient one who foreknew you before the foundations of the world, marked you by his grace and predestined you for adoption as his son or daughter. He is the sovereign redeemer of your soul who sees you right now. He sees you and he knows you. And he's looked upon you with favor and he's promised that he will sustain you and he will strengthen you and he will shepherd your soul through all of life's ups and downs, twists and turns, highs and lows until one day you meet him in glory where 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that he will restore and strengthen you in glory. Amen? That is the sovereignty of God that the Bible talks about. A sovereign Redeemer, rich in mercy, who deeply loves you. This is your God, and he's sovereign. He is willing all things in heaven and on earth toward redemption and reconciliation upon the return of Jesus Christ. Church, do you see the power of what Paul is saying to a church that's made up of different kinds of people, single people and married people, divorced people, widows, Old people and young people, do you see the power of what he's saying? Brothers and sisters, your life isn't random, it's called out. Your life, hear this, is not yours to architect. It's assigned by God to uniquely tell the story of his glorious grace in every season and in all circumstances. Paul says, don't wish you were living someone else's assignment. Married people who... Daydream about being free from the burdens and challenges of marriage and being single again. Single people who dream about finally being married so that you might be complete. Don't wish you were living someone else's assignment. Don't think your assignment is a lesser assignment. Lead the life that your sovereign Lord, your sovereign Redeemer has assigned to you for he's called you out. What a truth. See, Paul is teaching a beautiful Christian truth that there is no one-size-fits-all Christian life. Will you hear that? There is no one-size-fits-all Christian life. There is, no, there is no ideal Christian life. In the same way that God 
calls us out of many different backgrounds into salvation. He calls us into different statuses and different vocations to live as his people, like a, like a mosaic. This is what Paul is saying as he's writing to the church in Corinth in a multi-ethnic, multicultural, diverse city in Corinth. He says, the church, the church is like this mosaic. It's a diverse people united together. What are we united in? Our common story is what he's talking about in Galatians that I read earlier. He says there's one baptism. We're united in our common faith and obedience to Jesus Christ, each of us uniquely and collectively telling the story of his glorious grace. Ultimately, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, is a text that is calling us to contentment in Christ, to Christian contentment. This is, um, this is the doctrine that enables Paul to say what he says in Philippians 1.21. You know Philippians 1.21? To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's Christian contentment. It is a deep, delightful reality that we have access to. The Spirit helps us take hold of. Let me give you a definition of Christian contentment. Christian contentment is a settled satisfied and strengthened soul that comes from knowing Christ Jesus. A settled, satisfied, strengthened soul that can only come from knowing God through Christ Jesus. It's something that supersedes circumstances. Now, what this doesn't mean is that if the circumstances in your life are painful our life has been disappointing, life is hard. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve or mourn or lament those things. No, that's not what it means at all. But it means that we never grieve nor mourn nor lament without a deep and abiding hope, a hope of heaven, a present hope of a God who's with us by his spirit. It means that no matter what grief or disappointment we might experience, it's always framed in faith. It never gets outside the bounds of our faith in a living Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian contentment, embracing the truth that our identity and our significance and our joy doesn't come from the horizontal plane. It doesn't come from earthly possessions or relationships or earthly health or our work, anything on the horizontal plane. That's not where identity and significance and joy comes from. It comes from knowing the love of God through Christ Jesus. In fact, I believe that in, in, the wor- in this world, life in this world, no matter the culture or time, Christian contentment is our most significant, most powerful missional tools. I really do. I think that's why Paul is pointing to it here. A church that's gotten out of whack. It's kind of gotten uh, entangled in the culture of Corinth. They're not reflecting nor displaying the good news of Jesus. They've drifted away from him. And he's trying to pull them back to the anchored life of Christ. He's saying, be content because it will point to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I think it's one of our most, our greatest, most powerful missional tools to live a contented life. In fact, in his book, Seculosity, which by the way, this book has the longest subtitle of any book I've ever read. Here's the subtitle. Um, he, he, this guy should have uh, emailed back and forth with his editor. Se- Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance have become our new religion in the West. Um, David Zoll discusses how our Western world has become 
the most discontent, dissatisfied, most unsettled generation of human beings that have ever lived on planet Earth. In other words, he's saying, he's talking about as our world has grown more secular, we've grown, uh, our discontentment has gone off the charts. As the world's grown more secular, discontentment has gone off the charts. He argues that by our secular society trying to remove the vertical, removing God, and in doing so, removing God from the anchoring point in our life and in our society, what's happened is it's left us reaching to the horizontal for fulfillment, for identity, for significance. Um, uh, Philosopher Charles Taylor calls this the Nova effect. That in a secular culture, when we're no longer anchored in the vertical, it's like a star that bursts. And it just, the desires in our heart to be anchored in hope and in the steadfast love of God just spray toward, toward all of the horizontal. It's the Nova effect. And we see it in our society. Here's what Here's what David Zoll says in his book. He says, The religious impulses within us, being created by God and for God, are impossible to extinguish. Instead, they just get rebranded. And he's talking about secular culture. This desire made by God, for God, to worship God, to be anchored in God. We can't get rid of that. Even though secular culture is trying to get rid of God in order to find freedom, he's saying you can't get rid of that. It's in the soul. It's imprinted on you by the image of God. And so it just goes horizontal. If our current culture, a cultural climate tells us anything, it's that the needs addressed by religion for hope and purpose, connection, justification, for enoughness, haven't diminished or evaporated. They can't. They just go somewhere else. I want you to hear me. If you are looking horizontally, if you're looking to the things of earth for life, for settledness, for strength, for satisfaction, you will never find it. You'll never find it. See, so many of us, so many people in our world today, even maybe perhaps in this room, we live by this Western myth of the when then. When then? When I blank or have blank, then I'll be blank or have blank. When I get that job, then I'll be satisfied. When I find that partner in life, then I'll be whole. When I get that promotion, then I'll finally have enough. And it never stops. It's a myth of when then, breeding discontentment. And I want you to know that this is more pronounced in your life than you realize. Like the Corinthians were more formed by Corinth than they realized, and they needed gospel renovation, you and I are more formed by Western consumerism and hedonism than we realize, and we need renovation. Paul says we must look vertical. We must look to Jesus. In Colossians 3, 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Vertical, not the horizontal. For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears you will also appear with him in glory. He is your sovereign redeemer. See, Paul says, this is a core teaching in all of my churches. Live the life that God has assigned for you. Be content in Christ. In fact, this is really what Paul goes on to say in verses 18 through 24. He's saying, he talks about circumcision and slavery, and it maybe gets a little weird, but he's, he's saying, stop looking to the horizontal. Stop, don't be duped. Stop looking to the horizontal for identity and for significance. You'll never find it there. Remember the gospel. Look back at verse 18. He says, was anyone at the time of his call, Kaleo, when God called you out, anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? 
Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. What counts though? Keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition when he was called. What's he talking about here? Well, here's what he's doing. He's reminding us that in the family of God, in the new family of God, we are not defined by our appearances or by our exteriors. The reference to circumcision likely means a couple of things. First, it's a reminder that God's family, the church, is a multi-ethnic family by design. It's a multi-ethnic family by design. When he's talking about circumcision here, he's talking about the ethnic distinction between Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, Romans, in the city of Corinth. By design, God is calling people from all nations and tribes and tongues and cultures into the family of God, into Christ Jesus. And there's not one culture or one ethnicity that is more important or more dominant than any other. That's what he's saying. He said, that doesn't count for anything. What counts for us as God's new people? Obeying the command, living for Christ, living the life of Christ is what he's saying. Not Jew, not Greek, not black, not white, not rich, not poor. We are one in Christ. We are his body. And then the second thing that Paul is referencing here just about every commentator that I read this week mentioned this, and this might sound very weird to you, um, but it was normal in ancient Corinth. And that was the, 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 what's happening here is that the, the Christians in Corinth are likely more concerned about fitting in in the culture rather than standing out for Christ. Specifically, ethnically Jewish Christians who care too much about what the Greeks think about them. It was common in ancient Corinth for the Greeks to exercise outside in the nude. This was normal. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Be mature, be mature, be mature. I was thinking about doing burpees. That's all I was thinking about. That's difficult. I did it anyway. Sorry. The point that he's making is is that you're caring too much about what they think of you. And there was actually an operation in the ancient world that could reverse circumcision. He's saying, stop caring about what they think about you. And then those among you who care too much about what the Judaizers think about you, the Greeks who care too much about the Judaizers and their opinion of you, stop caring what they think about you. Instead, care about obedience to Christ. That's what matters. Not fitting into the culture, but standing out For Jesus, it's not the approval of others. Stop seeking the horizontal. Identity comes from Christ. And I think this is a good word for us to consider here, especially as our culture grows more secular and more post-Christian. It's good for us to consider, are we living our lives? I mean, think about your life. Think about in the neighborhood where you work, with your family, with your friends. Are, Are you more motivated by fitting in? Or are you more motivated by living lives that are called out? Are we content? And then he goes on, verse 21, and he turns his attention to uh, bondservants. He says, were you, uh, were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if, you gain, uh, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. So if God opens the door, walk through it. But it's God who opens the door. Again, it's about contentment. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do not become slaves of men, the approval of others. Don't live for the horizontal. 
brings him to his second point. So first, in the family of God, we're not defined by our appearances. And now he's getting at, in the family of God, because of Jesus Christ, we're not defined by our wealth or our work. We're not defined by our wealth or our work. I want you to know that urban slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not like American slavery during the 17th and 19th centuries. And so it's not, it's, not, it's not the comparison that he's making here. In fact, unlike the horrible evil of American slavery, in the Greco-Roman world, bondservants would, eat, would, would work for money. In fact, many, would even, many even came to Corinth and went into uh, bondservants, they went into this, uh, to the system in order to earn enough money to then be able to buy their freedom. It was in some ways, now there were certainly extremes, but there was ways, it was a way in which some would even try and climb the, the social ladder. And so that's what he's referencing here. He's, he's saying for some, it was a way people were trying to move up in society. And, and in other words, their attention and their focus was all on the horizontal. And so the point that Paul is making is that your wealth and your work do not define you. In fact, Christ's call upon your life, being called out by him, trumps your earthly status no matter the job. No matter the job, no matter your position or your role, you can work for him. And so if you're poor, Paul is doing a kind of a, a gospel parad- uh, paradox here. So he's saying if you're poor, you're rich in Christ. Live as if you're rich in Christ because Jesus is your identity. If you are rich, become poor for Christ's sake, because Jesus is your all in all. If you're a CEO, don't be puffed up with pride. You are a servant of Christ. If you are a low-level employee, don't despair. You are seated with Christ and God. Do you see what he's doing here? Identity comes from Christ, not our appearances, not our, not our ethnicity, not our work, not our wealth, not anything on the horizontal plane. We are one in Christ Jesus. This is the point that he's making. Church, wherever you are, whoever you are, contentment in Christ is available to you, and it is powerful. There's so much freedom here for us as we live in a world of discontentment. And so here's the points, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, here's the point. There is no condition, there is no season, there is no status that can keep you from living a full and satisfied Christian life. There is no season, there is no circumstance, there is no suffering, there is no status that can keep you from living a full and satisfied Christian life. God can work in us. God will work in us and through us, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're widowed, whether we're divorced, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're sick or healthy. In fact, he delights to do this, using each of us, working in each of us uniquely, using each of us uniquely as examples of his glorious grace. So in the words of the great theologian Doug Collins, Christian, embrace your role. Stay in your role unless God opens new doors and star in your role for Jesus. I want you to hear that wherever you are today and however you are today, we can stop looking horizontally and we can look up. We can look up. Will you take hold of the significance, brother in Christ, the significance that you have in Jesus right now? Will you take hold of the purpose and the great love of God that is for you in Jesus Christ right now? Sister, will you see the all-satisfying, 
all-strengthening, soul-settling love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Right now, it supersedes your circumstances. What a Savior we have. What a Lord in Jesus. Let's turn to him together. Let's pray. God, we give thanks to you for the beautiful truth of the gospel. That in Christ Jesus, there is not male or female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but there is one, that you are all in all. We thank you for the beautiful truth of the gospel that nothing can separate us, no circumstance, no suffering, no season, no station in life can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for the great hope that we have, that this world is not our home and that these things are all passing away, but your word never fails. Your church will prevail. Your kingdom will come. And so help us, Holy Spirit, to be your faithful people, to be content in all of the riches of Christ that are available to us. Help us to even help one another as a community, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to live for you with all of our might, to be satisfied in you, to hope forward, to hope not in the things of this world, but to hope forward in the coming kingdom that is ours. We want to say that we love you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.